Good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park. Um, If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 21. But before we get into the Word, um, real quick, two announcements that I have to make. Uh, Don't forget um, those baby bottles. They were due last Sunday. But if you have not brought those baby bottles back for the Catherine Foundation, please bring them back uh, today. Well, I hope you've brought them back. Um, And so um, bring them back. If you want to find out a little bit more information about the Catherine Foundation in the bulletin, it's one of our partner organizations that you can read about. Uh, Go to their website and see all all the wonderful work that they are doing. Second announcement is obviously on Friday afternoon, evening, I don't know what time, um, our, our governor um, lifted the mask mandate, and so obviously that impacts us, and so I was not going to send you an email because I was too lazy on Friday and didn't want to do it yesterday, um, plus all confusion. So I just figured I'll address it right now as I did in the early service at 9 o'clock. Um, you don't have to wear your mask, mask optional, um, but this is what I'm asking of you. If you don't want to wear your mask, don't wear it. If you do want to wear your mask, still wear it. But here's what I'm asking of you. Don't judge those who are wearing a mask and don't judge those who are not wearing a mask. Um, It is really sad to see how churches are literally splitting over a piece of fabric. Um, there's more things to fight for uh, than it is for a piece of fabric. And so what we have to understand is because of our union in Christ, because we are in Christ, our value is in Him, and we're even going to see this in our text, um, we become a slave to others as we serve others because of Christ, because of our freedom in Christ. And I know it's almost like this paradox, I'm free in Christ, and yet I I become a slave to everybody else. Um, And there's this wonderful paradox. Um, And so we'll talk more about that in our text. So let's get into the Word. Um, Acts 21, uh, verse 17. And so uh, we find ourselves, Paul, man, he is rushing to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. He's a man on a mission. His friends think he is absolutely crazy because of all the dangers and all the warnings of what's going to happen to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. And yet Paul finds himself resolved and he found found himself compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so when he makes it in Jerusalem, basically this is the outline of our text. We're going to see how Paul is welcomed uh, by by the church in Jerusalem. And then James kind of gives him instructions because of uh, some of the suspicions of Paul's ministry. And then we see Paul as he's welcomed. He, he follows these instructions and then he faces hostility towards the Jewish crowds. He gets arrested and that leads in his defense. So let's look at the part of Paul being welcomed by the church in Jerusalem in Acts 21 verse 17. It says this, when we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have, we have four men uh, who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about your accounts to nothing but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. 
With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when, he, when the offering would be made for each of them. So, so let's talk about the welcoming here. So, so immediately, uh, we see that Paul and his companions were welcomed by the church in Jerusalem. So you have James, you have Paul, and the rest of the elders of the church in Jerusalem uh, a gathering, praising God for all the victories. And I love how Paul presents his ministry. He's not promoting his ministry per se, but look at how he talks about his ministry in verse 19. It says in, in verse 19, And after greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the, among the Gentiles through his ministry. So in other words, he's not promoting himself but rather he is promoting, look at what God has done. Look at all the victories that God has done among the Gentiles. And as a result, in verse 20, we see that these Jews all glorified God. They responded in joy and not jealousy and suspicion. However, as these elders and these leaders are responding in joy and all that God has done and glorifying God through the ministry of Paul, we see there is a group that have become suspicious of Paul's ministry. Now, now James gives Paul rather interesting, uh, an interesting proposal in order to disarm uh, these suspicions. But, but let's talk about what not his motivation was, uh, because we're going to talk about, okay, why did James propose, make this proposal for Paul to disarm this suspicion? And so here's, let's talk about the not, and let's, let's talk about why the actual motivation is behind this proposal. So here's the first thing that James was not concerned about, okay? So James didn't give Paul this advice of, hey, do this, uh, go with these four men and purify yourself and to disarm the suspicion. He did not do this because James was concerned uh, about Paul's teaching when it comes to salvation. Because both James and Paul agreed that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. So they all agreed to it. So he's not telling him, do this because we're a little concerned about salvation issue and how you view salvation. The second thing is James was not concerned about what Paul was teaching the Gentiles because both James and Paul and the Jerusalem council agreed on what to teach the Gentiles. They, they came up with a solution. We agree that you don't have to get circumcised. We agree that, that you don't have to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved, that it's by God's grace alone and what Christ has done for you and it's readily made, made available through faith. However... We want you to, to do these things out of honor and respect for your Jewish brothers. So, Paul, so James wasn't really concerned about what Paul was teaching these Gentiles. The third thing is James wasn't even concerned about Paul's moral uh, view of the moral law. Like both James and Paul agreed that people who've been regenerated should walk in, 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 in holiness and observing Christ's law. So it wasn't about salvation, it wasn't about how to teach the Gentiles, it wasn't about the view of the law. The concern had all to do with Jewish cultural practices. And so this is why James makes this proposal to Paul, because the issue wasn't a salvation or a law issue, but the issue was should Jewish Christians cease from following cultural traditions? 
And they agreed, no. But there was this false accusation that was brought against Paul. Look, look at verse 21, how they falsely accused Paul. It says, but they've been informed about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to the customs. Paul never taught that. Paul didn't say, you know what, just abandon Moses, abandon circumcision, abandon Jewish customs. He never did. As a matter of fact, uh, when, when he recruited Timothy and Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile, what did he make Timothy do? He made Timothy get circumcised. Uh, the reason why Paul was in a rush to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost because Paul still observed some of these Jewish practices. And yet they brought these false accusations against him. They smeared him and misrepresented him. And so James' proposal, and his proposal was to demonstrate his respect, Paul's respect, for these Jewish customs and traditions that involves a presentation of an offering at the temple. So James basically tell Paul, hey, here's four guys who are making a Nazarite vow. Now, I don't have time to get into the Nazarite vow. If you want to find out more about it, that's in Numbers chapter 6. You can read about that in the requirement. And, and they're telling James, these guys are making a Nazarite vow, pay for their animals, pays for their head being shaved, and why don't you go ahead and go through the purification ritual anyway? And then maybe that would show these, these Jews that you still observe the tradition. Now, this purification ritual for, for Paul was actually very common for many Jews who traveled into Gentile areas and would make their way back into Jerusalem. And so John Paul Hill, this is what he says about this purification ritual. Maybe that will shed light on what Paul was doing and the reason behind it. He says, often a Jew on returning to the Holy Land after sojourn in Gentile territory, would undergo ritual purification. This period would involve seven days, which fits the present picture. Paul thus underwent ritual purification to qualify for participation in the completion ceremony of these four Nazarites, which takes place within the sacred precincts of this temple. This would be a thorough demonstration of his full loyalty to the Torah, not only in his bearing the heavy expenses of the vow, but also in undergoing the necessary purification himself. So in other words, in order for Paul to participate in the temple uh, acts, he had to purify himself, which he was proposed to do, and he did it anyway. But here's a question you might be asking. Why is James telling him to do that? And we know to disarm the suspicion. But isn't that like compromising on the gospel? Like, shouldn't they kind of abandon the temple uh, because all of it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Why still mingle with these customs? Why tell Paul to go under these customs just to disarm some mad Jews? Like, can't they just grow up and move on? But I don't think Paul was compromising on the gospel. Because when Paul does this, he kind of reveals his philosophy and gospel ministry, which he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Uh, this is Paul's philosophy and gospel ministry. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says, although I'm free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews... I became like a Jew to win the Jew, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law to win those under the law. 
To those without the law, like one without the law, though I'm not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak. In order to win the weak, and here's the phrase, I have become all things to all people so that I may be every possible means to save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. So the reason why Paul is putting himself under these ritual purifications is not so that he would compromise on the gospel, so that he would, but rather that he would eliminate barriers and unnecessary suspicions to put himself in position to more effectively share the gospel with them. And so this is what we see. It, Paul really offers this powerful picture of Christian freedom, showing us spiritual maturity. And here's what we have to understand. We are in Christ, and there are certain freedoms that we get to experience because we are in Christ. However, we don't flaunt those freedoms, but sometimes we put those freedoms aside, not because we're no longer free, but for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Later on, Paul would even talk about Christian freedom. He says it's permissible to do it, but is it beneficial? Like you do have those freedoms and you can celebrate those freedoms and nobody can stop you. But rather, he says, even though I'm not a slave to anyone, I'm free in Christ, I make myself a slave to everyone so that I can minister to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in other words, Paul's not compromising on the gospel, nor is he walking in sin, but rather he is putting aside some of his freedoms and in humility and in love, ministering to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, he, he, I think this is what we can learn if you're taking notes, is that we should adopt the attitude of humility and love in our gospel ministry like we should adopt the attitude of humility and love in our gospel ministry now i'm not telling you to be like paul because that would just be heresy paul's just a man but who is paul actually emulating think about this jesus fully god divine put on flesh became fully man and in humility, he humbled himself even to the point of death and obedience to the Father, looking out for the interest of others and a selfless, redeeming love. So why do we adopt an attitude of humility and love for gospel ministry? Because that's what Christ has done for us. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He who knew no sin became sin, took on our sin. And so when we find ourselves ministering to people in our culture, we don't compromise on the gospel. We do not walk in sin, but rather we lay aside some of our freedoms and in humility and love, we minister to them so that we can faithfully point them to Jesus Christ. Now, what that does not mean is we compromise on the gospel and we walk on sin. I, I think there is a very fine line. We don't compromise on the gospel. We do not walk in sin. 
but we do have a, have to have an attitude of humility and love. And I think that really all has to do with our identity in Jesus Christ. Um, I, I can be wrong, but I think one of the reasons we might have a difficult time to lay aside of our freedoms, it's because we have an identity issue. And here's why. Because sometimes we put our identity in our, our gender or in our race or our socioeconomic status or even in our culture. And when we no longer have those freedoms, all of a sudden we feel like we're being attacked. We feel like we almost as if we have no longer worth or no meaning, no purpose. But that's not true for the Christian because what's your identity in? Your identity is in Jesus Christ. So in other words, he is the one that gives you your worth. He is the one that gives you purpose. He's the one that gives you meaning. And the reason why you can lay aside some of your freedoms is because these freedoms do not define you. They don't give you worth, but rather Christ does. And so this is what we see Paul does. He humbles himself just like Christ to lovingly serve others as he become all things to all people so that he may point them to Christ. And may we do that as we follow Christ. Now, if you do this, it's all going to work out for you and life's going to be good. (laughs) That didn't happen for Paul. So despite Paul following James's example and in humility and love, ministering to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, putting himself under the law, going through these purification purposes, just when you think, yeah, if you do it, things will go well. Look at what happens. Despite this, look at how the crowd responded in hostility. Verse 27 says this. When the seven days were nearly over, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander approached him, took him him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked, who is he, who he was and what he had done? Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And since he was unable to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. And when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. So what do we learn? If you adopt the attitude of humility and love for the sake of others, that might not work out good for you. But you're not doing it because of the results. You're doing it because of Jesus Christ. But but look at the stark contrast between the spirit of Paul, humility and love, and the spirit of the Jewish crowd, hostility and hatred. And and look at these these, uh, kind of audacious accusations 
has no grounds of them, but yet the reason why they're accusing him of these extreme things is not because they're after truth, but rather they want to generate a mob violence. And these accusations are so ironic because what's Paul putting himself through? Purification, Jewish customs, and yet they ignored it. And as a result of these claims, the crowd became so hostile that Luke says they tried to kill him. And yet, fortunately, the Roman soldiers who were stationed at the temple, and the reason why they're stationed at the temple, because they know the temple as a volatile place for violence. When they heard the uproar, they came because their job is to make sure that there's peace in the city. They take uh, Paul into custody, put him under arrest, trying to figure out who is this guy, what has he done. They try to gather information and yet everybody is yelling all different kinds of things they have no idea what's happening and the crowd is so violent they literally had to pick Paul up probably carrying above their shoulders because they were trying to rip him and shred him to peace as these soldiers is drag they're dragging him from the crowd and the only thing they keep chanting is get rid of him it's amazing this parallel because who else did they do this a few years ago they chanted in front of Pilate get rid of him crucify him now it's easy for us to 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 look at this story and and think man James just gave Paul bad advice don't listen to James but but what we have to see it I don't think he gave him bad advice What's really happening in the life of Paul is one of uh, many links in the sovereign plan of God because the ultimate destination for Paul was not Jerusalem but Rome, and yet Jerusalem was the very first stop for Paul to get to Rome. So we're going to see God's sovereign plan working out in Paul through, through the rest of the book of Acts. But one of the things we learn is that throughout the history of the church, Many Christians have been and will continue to be victims of hostility and false accusations. The early church was accused for um, incest, cannibalism, and atheism. The reason why they were accused for incest, because they greeted one another with the holy kids. They were affectionate and loving towards one another, so they were accused of incest. They were accused of cannibalism because every time they gathered, they sat at the Lord's table, drinking, eating the body, drinking the blood of Christ. They were feasting on Jesus Christ, not knowing what that meant. They were just like, yeah, they're gathering to eat Jesus. They're eating one another. They were accused of atheism because they refused to believe that the emperor was divine. They refused to, to believe in, in the plurality of gods, and yet their only God was the triune God. The only Lord was Jesus Christ. And so he, there, they've been falsely accused. And even today, we are being falsely accused today. We're being accused of being bigots, oppressors of freedoms because of our biblical view of marriage, gender, and life. And yet, despite these accusations, we've got to remember our suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Look at all the many times Jesus was accused. And Jesus even tells his disciples, they will hate you because they have hated me. And, and so here's the second thing we can learn. is that not only must we adopt the attitude of humility and love, 
for gospel ministry, but we must also in humility and love obey Jesus. Regardless of these accusations, we must in humility and love obey Jesus. That means we surrender some of our freedoms. That means we become all things to all people without compromising the gospel, without walking in sin, knowing that we're not alone. Jesus is with us, and His grace is there with us. We're empowered by His Spirit And even despite these false accusations, you know what happens at the end? Jesus comes and has the last word. You don't have to have the last word or the last say. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't. It's not your job. That's Jesus' job. Stop trying to be Jesus. He's coming to make all things new. He's coming to have the last say. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. All you do is adopt the attitude of humility and love in your gospel ministry. Become things to all people without compromising the gospel, walking in sin. And regardless of the outcome, you obey. In humility and love, you obey the king. And his name is Jesus. Um, after the hostility from the crowd, Paul, he, he, he gives his defense. Now, before we look at the defense here in verse 1, um, it is very interesting to note when Paul is giving his offense, uh, his defense, who, who's the target audience? Who's he talking to? He, he's talking to Jews. And so it's good for us to remember he's going to add some details in his conversion story that might be a little different than Acts 9, actual conversion. But the reason why he's adding some of those details, and I'm going to point that out to you, is because he is trying to tailor his message to the Jewish crowd. So, so we can break up his defense in, in four parts. The first part of his defense, if you're taking notes, is his former zeal. So, so look at Acts 22, verse 1. He says this, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. So, so Paul begins his defense by showing up, his, by showing his former zeal. He's identifying with the crowd, reflecting on his former life. He's like, look, guys, I'm one of you. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, but I was raised up in the city in Jerusalem. I sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, and all of, everybody knew Gamaliel. He's like the Yoda of rabbis. Everybody knows him. I sat under his teaching. I became a Pharisee, and I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I was so zealous for the law that I even persecuted Christians. I made sure that I handed both men and women over to the Jewish council in hopes that they would be condemned and they would die. And if you don't believe me, go talk to the leaders. Go talk to the Jewish council. They can show you the letters that they gave me to go to Damascus to make sure I arrest them in hopes that they would die. So, he, so here we see he, he, he's bringing up this detail to, to, to relate to this Jewish crowd. 
And then he moves uh, talking from his former zeal and how his life was changed forever by a single encounter with Jesus. Look, Look at verse six. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything that you've been assigned to do. So everything in Paul's life changed with a single encounter with Jesus. I love, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts 9, you'll only read Jesus. The reason why he says Jesus of Nazareth is so that these people knew Jesus of Nazareth. He did not want to mistake the identity of Jesus because the Jesus of Nazareth who they rejected was the Jesus that encountered Paul and radically changed his life. And again, I just love how Jesus encounters Paul. I love what Jesus tells Paul how he addresses with his people. He's not saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? And so this should take great encouragement for us because when you're persecuting God's people, you're persecuting God. When you go against God's people, you go against God. Think about this. When you're being falsely accused, who are they actually accusing? They're accusing God. And so we can take great encouragement with with it. But then also look at God's, look at, look at the Lord Jesus' amazing grace. Even though Paul was going against Jesus, Jesus did not consume him, but rather commissioned him. He did not execute him, but yet by his amazing grace, he took this terrorist that terrorized churches and Christians, and he turned him into a church planter. And now we see from Paul's encounter, he receives the commission from Jesus through Ananias. Look at verse 11. He says, since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law who had good reputation with all the Jews living there. You see how he's tailoring his message? Oh yeah, and by the way, if you think I'm a sham, Go talk to Ananias. You all know him, has a good reputation among you. Verse 13, he came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God, verse 14, important. The God, and he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. And since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So here the same Jesus that did not consume him but extended grace commissioned him. And notice the details that Paul gives about his commissioning. The very first commissioning, he says, the God of our ancestors. Look at verse 14 again, because this is very important. He says, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will. 
the God of our ancestors. That's the very same wording, and Jews would understand that the very same language God used in Moses' burning bush experience. So in other words, not just to, to, to validate his commissioning, in a sense by saying the God of our ancestors, he's saying the same God that commissioned Moses was the same God that commissioned me. But it's not just to validate the commissioning that he received, but it was also to show them the grace of God. Because what did Moses do to be commissioned by God to lead his people out of slavery? Absolutely nothing. It's by God's grace that he commissioned him. And by Paul using his lang- this language, he's saying, I did not do anything to deserve this commissioning. I deserve to be consumed because I went against the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, and yet he did not give me what I deserved. He extended grace, and he commissioned me. And so both Moses and Paul were dependent on grace. But look what he was commissioned to. Verse 14, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. Like this righteous one is this allusion to to the Old Testament. And really what Paul is doing by saying this, he's trying to show the continuity between the law of Moses, the old covenant, and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Because the prophet Isaiah speaks about this righteous one, this obedient servant who would be wounded for our transgressions. And the only way for a person to be righteous if he looks to the righteous one, not through religious efforts. And so Paul devoted his life to proclaiming this righteous one. And really what he's doing by by saying this phrase, he's really saying, if you guys understood Judaism, and if it's practiced according to the law of Moses and it's rightly understood, it's not going to lead you to self-effort. It's going to lead you to look to the righteous one whom whom Isaiah spoke about. And then he says, I've been a witness about this to all people. And then he receives instructions how to act on his commission in verse 16. Why are you waiting for? Get up, get baptized, and wash away your sins. In other words, become a new person, a new creation in Jesus. Now, we see Paul's defense. We see his former zeal. We see his encounter with Jesus. And then we also see, um, um, we also see his commissioning. But the last part is the vision in the temple in verse 17. This is not found in Acts chapter 9. I think the reason why he's mentioning that is to address the charges that's been brought against him. You're violating the temple. Look at verse 17, and then we'll draw application. He says this, After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord... They know that in, that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believe in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witnesses, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed me. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this vision is very interesting. Because you know who else had a vision in the temple? The prophet Isaiah. It's almost these two visions are running parallel. Both Isaiah and Paul received a vision in the temple. Both of them were were told to give a message, and both of them were told that they would be rejected. 
The only difference is Isaiah was commanded to stay in the city while proclaiming God, even though he will be rejected, Paul was asked to leave. Now, Paul was not asked to leave because in order to preserve his safety, but rather he was asked to leave because of his purposes. And what was his purposes? To make this message known among the Gentiles. And when Paul said it, all hell broke loose. We'll talk about it next week. But what are some applications that we can learn from this text? Here we see Paul, a man on a mission, wanted to make it to Jerusalem. He takes the advice of of James to disarm the suspicions as he adopts the attitude of humility and love in his gospel ministry so that he can become all things to all people. He doesn't compromise in the gospel. He does not sin. And yet, regardless of the outcome, we see him in humility and love obey Jesus. Turns out really bad for him. But it gives him an opportunity to give a defense. And I think there's three things that we can learn that we can apply to our lives. The first thing we can learn is we can learn from Paul's calmness. Like, like think about his calmness in this intense moment of hostility and false accusations. How did Paul respond? In meekness, gentleness, kindness, compassion. He did not respond in anger. He did not go on the attack or even on self-defense. He remained calm. Again, who does this remind us of? The suffering servant. Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Isaiah says this about him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep silent before he shears, he did not open his mouth. I think one of the first things we can learn is when we find ourselves in a culture where there will be a growing of hostility, when there will be a growing of false accusations, remain calm. Respond in gentleness, meekness, and compassion. I think the second thing we can learn from Paul is we can learn from Paul's courage. We can learn from his courage. In the face of opposition, he did not waver. He did not compromise. He stood his ground. He remained firmly on the gospel. And so we can learn that in in, in face of hostility and face of accusation, we can remain calm and we can stand our ground. We can remain true to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's only when we stand firm on the gospel truth and we remain loving towards people, it's only then we can offer something to this broken world. But the second we compromise on either truth or in love, we don't have anything to offer this broken world. Paul saw these Jews not as enemies. He saw them as image bearers. And in his compassion, in his calmness, he stood firm and courage because he knew They needed Jesus. And the last part is this. We can learn from Paul's calling. Paul knew his assignment. His assignment was to proclaim the good news, was to be a witness of Jesus to all people. 
And on this occasion, they rejected him. On other occasions, they believed him. And what we can learn is like, we're not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible for being obedient to the calling, and we have received that very same calling. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. We've been commissioned to be obedient, to be witnesses and make disciples. We're not responsible for the outcome. And I think sometimes we take that responsibility of the outcome on us, and really what it does is it crushes us under the pressure. And we take that rejection as personal, as if I did something wrong. Well, I should have done that any better. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible to remain faithful. And yet, as you remain faithful, God has the power to radically transform anybody's life. How do I know it? Paul would say, man, look at me. I killed people. What did you do? And yet he changed me. Look at some of your own life. Look at how the Lord has radically transformed you. So what does that mean? That, that, that means we, 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 we pray, we sow the seed, we water the seed, and we trust the Lord to grow that seed and turn it into a beautiful plan for His glory. So, so as we get to be ready to, to, to sit at the table, I want to apply this, this table to our life and, and this gospel truth. I, I think we can sometimes find ourselves maybe in two spectrums here. Uh, the first one is, is maybe that of anger when it comes to some of our freedoms are under attack. And so we, we might feel like, you know what, it really angers me and all of that. And this is how the table speaks to you. What's your identity in? This table reminds you of who you are. You're not your race. You're not your culture. You're not your freedoms. You're not your gender. You're not your money. You're not your job. You're not your cars. You're not anything you own. You get to sit at the table as what? a son and daughter. Did you do anything to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. So you can remain calm and sit at this table where you can eat the broken body of Jesus that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. As through this table, he reorients your heart away from hostility and anger to submit yourself in humility and love. Because we're people that are quick to forget I quickly respond in anger. How dare they say that about me? And yet this table reminds me, yeah, my identity is not what they say about me. My identity is in Jesus Christ. And then maybe for some of you on the other side of the spectrum, maybe you're not in anger, but maybe you're in fear. You look at everything that's going on in the world. You're thinking about the growing hostility and the false accusations, and you are really afraid of, of standing your ground. You get to sit at the table. And what does this table remind you of? It reminds you again of who you are in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, you are now a son and daughter of the king. You are an heir to the promise. You are an heir to the kingdom of God. And his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Think about this wonderful privilege that you get to have. And in times of feeling weak, in times of feeling worthless, or in times of even feeling incompetent, you can draw strength from the body of Christ and the blood of Christ as you're reminded, it's not me, 
but it's Christ living in me. I am united with Him. Reorient your hearts. And so as, as our ushers are coming forward to hand out these elements, and so this is what we want to, to be reminded of, like, like use this time to meditate on your identity in Christ. Think, 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 think about your love. Think about some of these obstacles that might prevent you to submit yourself in humility and love for the sake of others. Think about the obstacles that might prevent you from in humility and love to obey Jesus. And look to Jesus. Remind yourself of who you are in Him. Remind yourself of the wonderful privilege you have. Remind yourself of the wonderful love that He has for you, that His body would be broken for you and His blood would be shed for you. So think about those gospel promises. Meditate upon it. Draw strength from it so that we may go out and remain calm, courageous, and be obedient to the calling that we have received. Let me pray for us before we distribute these elements. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you that we are, are not our own, that we belong to you. We thank you that our worth is not found in us and what we do, but our worth is found in you and what you've done for us. And regardless of what we think about ourselves and regardless of what people think about ourselves, the only thing that matters is what you think about us. And when you see us, you see us as righteous. There's nothing we can do to earn your love, and there's nothing we can do for your love to diminish towards us. For your love is perfect because we are in you. You see Christ in us. You see us as righteous because of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we hand out these elements, may they almost, in a sense, become real, where they reorient our hearts and our minds. May we look to you. May we rest in you. May we find peace in you. May we find courage in you. May we find boldness in you. May we find calmness in you. May we find faithfulness in you. So come, Lord, and speak as we meditate upon these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name.